Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello, Hadja here. Welcome to a special episode of the Dabblers Book Club. Curtis will be joining shortly, but before he does, let me tell you about today's guest. Nadia Ragazina is a journalist and TV producer for BBC World News and a sustainability blogger. She's also just released her first book, a captivating memoir about her Jewish family in 20th century Europe. Worlds Apart is a tapestry of stories that cascades down from two brothers, Marcus and Adolf. Their journey starts in turn-of-the-century Warsaw, and for one brother it takes him to Switzerland, the other to Soviet Russia. Despite the distance, the brothers stay in touch, but it's not until 2010, almost a century after Marcus leaves Warsaw, that his daughter Anna and his niece Genya meet for the very first time. Adolf's daughter Genya was 97, Anna 10 years younger, and Anna's granddaughter, Nadia, has since woven their stories and memories into a touching and intimate family history set against a backdrop of revolution, repression and Jewish persecution in 20th century Europe. Now, the Dabblers Book Club is for fiction, but we couldn't resist a good story, so we decided to get Nadia on and ask her about her favourite novels and her own journey writing Worlds Apart. Nadia, hello. Hi. Hello. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us. It's wonderful to, to have you on. Um, let's, let's get straight into it, shall we? I mean, I want to talk about Worlds Apart, but before we do, uh, you've sent us over some of your favourite novels, um, and as we're a fiction podcast, I think that's a good place to start. To my shame, because I'm the, the slow reader and the non-reader out of the two of us, I haven't read any of the books you sent. Um, but Curtis Curtis has. So I'm going to hand it over. Curtis. Well, yes, very good of you to send us some some books. I was so excited when I saw 1Q84 by Murakami in your list. Um, you might have suggested to me that you don't remember it so well, but I'd love to know what you do remember and uh, what made you put it down on the list. So when Hadja said that, you know, I should talk about my favourite books, it was very exciting because I have a lot of favourite books, but it was also quite a struggle to actually work out which one was my most favourite. So I wasn't quite successful in doing that, but 1Q84 is definitely one of them. I'm a huge fan of Haruki Murakami. I've been reading his books since I was, I think, about 14. Um, I think it was probably quite too young to start reading his books because a lot of the early works I definitely would need to read again now (laughs) but I think for me personally his books the sense of kind of surrealism and alternate reality is something that I don't generally enjoy in fiction you know I'm very much when I talk about the other favorite book I wanted to tell you about today A Little Life you'll see that it's a very different story and usually I go for those kind of books that are very much firmly set in reality which very much remind us of real life you know where you can kind of get Mm. something of real experiences of people so for me Murakami has always been that one author which who is a little bit different from what I really like and I just absolutely love 
kind of being able to imagine what if and how do you interpret his stories and um, you know I remember reading one Q84 I was on holiday in Italy just quite a few years ago it was before before I had children before when you know when I was still able to just literally spend the whole day on the beach reading a book it was that kind of an experience and it was absolutely magical in the sense you know the book has a lot of that magic in it and it's beautifully written beautifully translated and I remember really you know as I was reading it, trying to kind of interpret it for myself. And I think that's the beauty of his writing. I don't know if you agree, Curtis, is that you can kind of like, where does it take you? How, what do you think it means? There's always that little left to interpretation. No, absolutely. I know exactly what you mean. And, and I'm genuinely not just saying this because you're on the podcast, but I put Murakami in my top five writers. And for exactly what you said, just that escapism where you never know what you're going to get. Because I think he's really good at writing a scene where you're in a diner in Tokyo and he tells you that he's having a beer and some nuts and just something about the way he frames it you you know you so want to be having the beer and nuts but then at the same time he'll talk about stepping into another dimension out of nowhere in fact in 1Q84 you know obviously starts with um, the girl um, I think Aomame was the character's name climbing down from the side of the motorway on that uh, fire escape ladder she comes out of it in a obviously the very slightly different um, reality yeah. and I love how it weaves together yeah a very normal domestic life with alternate reality and like another one is the um uh, have you read uh Kafka on the shore yes but i w- yeah i have so he, yeah he ends up going the, the protagonist goes into the furthest part of the woods he can go and the end and he ends up also crossing into you know some dreamland it's just brilliant i really yeah no i really agree it's also really interesting like when you try and as you keep reading you have to catch that moment when it crosses back into the real world and i mm. always find myself you know just it's just amazing how he weaves it together, how creative he is and how some, some things are kind of like just normal, as you were saying, mundane daily life and how it all kind of comes together. And and I remember thinking about that book for so many days after I'd read it, you know, trying to just how clever it was put together. Obviously, it's a really long book as well, but how clever it's all put together and you having finished reading it, it just makes total sense. So I really enjoy mm. enjoyed that. Yeah, no, definitely. And I thought it was really interesting what you said about um, maybe reading some when you were slightly too young. I didn't know how young you meant because obviously he gets a little <laughs> bit um, close to the bone and, well, you know, a bit bit, um, bit rude at bit times, adult, really. Yeah. yeah, a bit adult. Um, I did, is that what you no, meant? It's just that I think maybe at the time I was just so thirsty for fiction and I think maybe I wasn't processing it well enough. You know, you read oh, something okay. when I was 14. I, d- I think I just um, didn't kind of stop and think about it too much. I, I mean, I was, I don't remember yeah no it, it, not that yeah oh, okay, <laughs> sorry yeah. i think that's something that put you off because hadja <laughs> i mean you, you read norwegian wood i think i read norwegian wood i loved it no I, I mean i think he's a fantastic writer um was really absorbed by the book i just you know with murakami it's women are always wet i feel like they're just constantly wet all the time and i i'm really worried that I, what i said has just been like broadcast to your children while they're sleeping no, children are asleep that's fine <laughs> and i don't remember re- thinking that when i read uh, norwegian wood or any of the other books yeah. <laughs> that's like my takeaway from murakami um but we we say this a lot in the podcast as well how when you read something is so important, like a book is just not a reflect, like how you feel about a book is not a reflection of the book at all for, for many no. novels. It's all about where you are in your life and that connection. So 
Oh, yeah, I'm thrilled you love that book. So do I. And I've, I've, um, you read that recently, didn't you? Yeah, during lockdown. Yeah. Um, so it wasn't quite a beach in Italy. It was in the bedroom upstairs when we couldn't go anywhere. Um, we're going to touch on some of your other favorite books, but just could you give us like a picture in general? What do you like to read, uh, fiction wise, sort of normally? How would you describe your tastes? Well, so I had to think about it actually, just as I was preparing for this podcast and having looked over my bookshelf, I think there's definitely a theme of very thick novels very long long books where you can you can get engrossed in them and I think definitely a theme was reading on holiday where I could just lose myself completely and just imagine myself in a different world but as I said Murakami is definitely an exception because I do generally I usually go for books that are much more kind of set in reality and because I think I I actually read a lot more non-fiction than I do read than I read fiction and I do like books fiction novels where there is something that I can learn from it whether it's someone else's experiences whether it's um, set in a country that I've never been to before or a culture I haven't experienced because I do believe that all fiction you know all novels they are still based in something that's someone's experience of real life and different culture and I think I really appreciate that when I can um, when I can learn from that experience and, and learn about something something new. Um, so one of the books that I wanted to talk about, and when I told Hadja, do you remember when I told you about it, you said that it was too depressing and you put it down. <laughs> okay, full disclaimer, I was going through a divorce at that point and my friend said, what books are you reading? Read a nice book. And I was like, well, I'm, I'm reading A Little Life right now. She's like, maybe... Maybe that's not the book right now. And then my mum sent me something about a fireplace and a cottage. So I thought, okay, I'll I'll read that instead. Uh, I got about an eighth of the way through. That makes sense. But it also goes back to what you were saying earlier. Every book you read is not reflection on the book. It's a reflection on your own circumstances, right? So when you said to me, oh, it was so depressing, I put it down. I didn't actually remember it being depressing. Again, I read it quite a few years ago. But as I was then started, I remember the plot line actually really well. But obviously I've blocked off some of the more horrific and it is a very depressing book and it talks about some horrific, uh, it has some horrific storylines and, you know, it's a very difficult read. But I loved the storyline. I loved the writing, you know, the fact you get to know the characters so well, you almost like it's almost like, you know, them. And obviously, I think for me, having enjoyed it so much, I just blocked off all the really horrible stuff because, well, it's part of life, and um, I don't. Re- I didn't remember it being such a grim read, but I have been reading reviews of it <laughs> for quite a long time today, and I'm actually quite surprised. Um, but I think it was beautifully written, and it really like you can lose yourself in that story, you know. And again, if if it's something that teaches you about different, um, you know, different culture, maybe different experiences of people who different experiences people have had so I found it quite um it was quite a a lot I could learn from it as well are you are you like that in the rest of your life like everything is something that can be analyzed or understood better yeah I think well I'm a journalist you know I'm constantly analyzing I'm constantly trying to well I'm trying to learn new things I have to learn new things you know I end up learning about things I don't particularly thought I never thought I would want to learn about that's why I always joke that you know it's really hard for Google to target me with advertising because in any <laughs> given day I will, will be researching you know terrorists and sustainable fashion and Brexit and the <laughs> coronavirus and everything so you know my Google search history is, is really intense so so you're an algorithm's nightmare <laughs> well exactly so I generally really enjoy learning about something and I think 
maybe that's also why I became a journalist because you know, I've always been into reading I've always wanted to kind of and I think I've learned a lot of history from the non-fiction books that I've read as well because I've you know I was born in Russia I spent most of my childhood there I moved to England when I was 15 so I was kind of um, moved halfway through like growing up process yeah. if you know what I mean so I think it was important for me to kind of keep learning through the books that I was reading and to ad- adjust to like different cultural environment through what I was reading as well and that was really helpful. Out of interest do you read Russian and do you read Russian literature or anything like that at all? I do. I don't read it as much as I used to. I spent my, well, until I came here, I was always reading in Russian. I think if I was, if I read books now that are originally written in Russian, I will read them in Russian. I make a point of that. So if I need a book that I can't get in Russian here, then I'll get someone from coming from Russia to to bring it to me. Um, just to kind of keep it up because I've been here for 20 years now and it would be easier to just read it in English. Um, But no, obviously... I don't have as much time now, so so I read mainly in English. Actually, just as a side, if you ever get, um, if you ever have some sort of contemporary Russian that you could recommend, because <laughs> I'm trying to tap into into the classics. So I've done a couple of Dostoevsky's and I've had to go over a couple of Bulgakov's, but I and I I haven't quite got my head around yet, like what Russian literature is. But I know I like it, and I know I'm drawn to it. Definitely, yeah, I can send you some ideas. There's a guy called Boris Akunin. It's uh, his pseudonym, mm-hmm. but he's been writing. So I remember he, first reading him maybe when I was still in Russia, I think, actually. So he's been writing all sorts of fiction and nonfiction. And he's a fascinating guy. And I think he lives partly in London now as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so he's still writing, still publishing. So he would definitely be one to check out. Oh, brilliant. Yeah, absolutely. I will. Can you tell which of us is the reader? <laughs> <laughs> well, also, um, I, I, because a couple of times now you've mentioned where you were when you were reading the book, and I love that. It's something I really um, value myself. You know exactly where you are when you're reading a book. Yes, and when I read A Heart of a Dog by Bulgakov, I was on the beach in Monaco on my own, doing a job out there, and every day I was on the beach, and it was scorching hot. But because that that book is set, you know, in like a, a Russian fridge almost, the whole thing is so wintry. I remember feeling cold. <laughs> And like physically cold and like I was that uh, engrossed in the book that, yeah, I like thought it was a different temperature. Um, That's the most amazing experience for me is when you completely forget where you are and what you're meant to be doing, you mm. know, or you lose track of time and you realise, oh, it's like two o'clock in the morning and I'm still reading. You know, those are the books that really, for me, that, that you know, that's what makes a good book. Yeah, and yeah. that's why the longer the better in a way you can stay there longer there is definitely a theme actually with the books you sent us of like you say Wait. big <laughs> big bricks this is my um, exercise for the day was lifting these off the bookshelf so the goldfinch you mentioned oh, gold which finch, we haven't yeah. read but it was on our bookshelf that's another thing about me I no, I don't always buy the best seller straight away you know when something gets splashed out splashed on all the front pages and gets put put up on all in all the bookshops I don't always automatically go for that book I kind of wait a little and I see how I feel about it because I, I you know I'm maybe a bit of a snob but I always kind of seek out slightly um, less uh, popular titles mm. but I think yeah. the ones we've been talking about have obviously all been bestsellers uh, the Goldfinch definitely is worth reading. Uh, I recommend it. Cool. Right. We certainly <laughs> will do. <laughs> yeah, you you can. Again, I just, I mean, I always have memories of picking up a big book um, off the library shelf at school 
And the librarian comes up to me and asks me, oh, you sure you want to read that big book? So I don't know. I feel maybe I always remember that librarian's face. But just if you need to know the sorts of schools we went to. Well, to be honest, I don't think there was a library in the school that I went to in Russia. I don't think that was a thing. Wow. How much do you want to tell us about that? Would you talk to us about? Well, my parents were both huge readers. And uh, I remember just as soon as I I was old enough and, you know, kind of older I don't know 12 maybe 11 12 and I started getting books from their bookshelf basically I would come and my mum would recommend which books she thought you know was age appropriate whatever and my favorite absolutely favorite books growing up were, were the three musketeers you know I think I'm probably started with the, by Alexander Dumas and I think I probably started with the kids version when I was younger you know eventually progressing to the actual and it's like it's a real it's a proper thick novel and then there are two sequels And I remember gradually we had the whole collection of his works. And that was really common at the time in Russia. They were all really nicely bound in leather or some kind of really nice material. So we had the whole collection by Alexander Dumas and then like Victor Hugo. French classics were really big in the Soviet Union. And so I remember very distinctly how I had a very small bookshelf above my bed and um, gradually the whole of the collection of Alexander Dumas migrated to my bookshelf they were officially mine they were green they were really thick like hardcover books and they were all like Queen Margot I read I, um, The Count of Monte Cristo um, they were they was it was a massive part of the Soviet culture they were all made into films with really popular Soviet actors but also we had the French uh, versions of those films translated and obviously for me those books they were you know very similar to actually the type of fiction that in a sense I mean if you can compare French classics to modern uh, fiction at all but in a sense you know they're completely you just get completely immersed in the book that you're reading and the storylines and there's just so much happening and obviously well also in um, the French novels there was a lot of history that I learned um Mm -hmm through that again the learning experience for me but I was completely lost in the kind of in the adventures and then what was happening in those books there is a magic to reading when you're young isn't there like you know it is a real way of escaping I remember like you know hiding under the bed covers and things and well that feels like a good point to talk about worlds apart I'm about a third of the way through it um, which is probably good because otherwise if there are any big spoilers I would give them away and it's the story of two brothers Marcus and Adolf Um, Marcus being your great-grandfather and Adolf your great-great-uncle. And they're born in sort of late 19th century Warsaw and one brother moves to Switzerland and the other ends up in Russia and maybe questions his choices at some point. Well, his his family certainly did. I think my my kind of my grandmother and my mother later on, they certainly did. I mean, yes, exactly. That's a very nice retelling of the story of the summarizing of it. Um, And I, yes, so I've written this book, Worlds Apart, despite having spent my whole life reading, I never thought I would actually write a book. So this is something that I came to later. And this was discovering the story. So I grew up knowing that there was Adolf who had gone to Switzerland and that he was my grandmother's uncle. And we had these amazing, beautiful photos that she kept, that she had kept all her life. The two brothers were in touch. So so Adolf had gone over to Switzerland in 1905 and Marcus left Poland in, so after the First World War, around the time of, you know, the Russian Revolution you know, we don't know exactly when he, he made his way across to Moscow. And so for a while, they were in touch. They were sending letters to each other. We know that we knew, or well, my grandmother, Marcus, sorry, knew that his brother had kids. 
And so my grandmother grew up with this, with these photographs of her cousins, you know, first cousins, like sisters, and they'd send them across and they wrote little messages for uh, their aunt and uncle uh, Marcus and his wife, Zina. And, but as it got the atmosphere, the political atmosphere changed, it got increasingly dangerous to stay in touch with contacts abroad, with family abroad. And then with the second world war, and uh post-war you know they lost touch it was because it was dangerous because it was hard to get in touch to to keep uh, in touch because marcus was arrested and exiled they the two brothers they died in the 50s two years apart from each other and after that that was it there was no more contact so my grandmother treasured these photos but she also knew that she could never talk about her family abroad and mm. i think it was that for me personally growing up it was i mean much later by I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today time I was growing up it was fine to talk about having family abroad in the 90s that that wasn't a problem but you know the trauma is a genetic thing in a sense as well you know my grandmother lived through the 30s the Soviet repressions the Stalinist repressions the post-Soviet uncertainty and the terror and my mother kind of absorbed a lot of it so it was like a family atmosphere we just didn't talk about that so I think for me discovering finding that family again connecting the dots retracing the roots and meeting my cousins it was that that spurred me on to the researching and, and starting to write the book. I mean, it was the story itself that I found fascinating. Yeah, it's, in, it's incredible. Um, and just, oh, I mean, we were talking about this very loosely under COVID times. This is the first hint that most people in Britain, have, the first hint we've got of actually being restricted because of what a government has said on such a small minor scale. And then you think people moving from country to country either to um, escape poverty or political unrest or trying to move towards prosperity and getting a better life for their families. Or in the case of your um, of your great-grandfather, he sort of seemed like he wanted more of a sense of purpose, possibly because, you know, he joined the Russian Imperial Army um, and then sort of, I, I don't know if changed sides or changed sensibilities and sympathies. He changed, yeah, it's the ideology, you know, the so the, the czarist regime was kind of, you know, under in a lot of trouble and it was the communist um, kind of ideology filtered through the armed forces. He was in the army, he, was, he wasn't like a high-ranking officer or anything, he was... Um, orderly you know he was a fairly like he was a, a very highly courageous and decorated man but he was quite low in the ranks you know and so those are the people who like he he was surrounded by a lot of people like him and, and the ideology was filtering through and I think that's what happened you know he grew up in the in the Jewish quarter in Warsaw so that they happened to be part of the uh, Russian empire yeah and yes he went to fight because a lot of people at the time a lot of Jews were going to fight for the Tsar um, they were, it, 
it was a very politicized situation as it was. But I think he, yes, he got caught up in the ideology, absolutely. And he believed that uh, socialism would bring a better life for him. And that's why uh, when the war was, was finished, um, he moved to Moscow. I think for Adolf, leaving was, it was a different decision. But at the time, you know, there was also very few jobs and it was very difficult to make a living. And when he got married and his new wife's um, sister was already living in Switzerland. They, she had already gone over. And when she sent notes saying, well, look, there are, there are jobs here. You can come over and start from scratch. You know, it was, again, it was very common. Jews were leaving. The pogroms were ongoing. Mm. Um, so a lot of Jews were leaving. Uh, again, that was, you know, just part of the kind of political environment. Coming back to your um, journey writing this, actually, you know, quite fascinating that you met new people and, and, and you know, relatives who are part of this journey. I guess with your job as a journalist, you're, you're probably very good at approaching people and, you know, not freaking them out and, you know, easing them into what you're talking about. But this is obviously something, A, very raw and B, something you're very directly connected to um how were people's reactions when you were you know getting in touch to do this do the research um it was an amazing moment so we were on the genealogy website it's called genie.com and we were there on it with my mum uh, already looking at my dad's side of the family and we were looking at it and it was very nicely put together it had all the photos and all the stories and we were like hey well that's great you know we just need to complete this tree now let's um let's start building our side of the tree. And then once we'd done the immediate family, we were like, okay, hey, well, it's, it's time for the Swiss relatives. And we were incredibly lucky that they were already on that website. That's how it works. You know, it's not a database. Someone has to have registered already. And when we found those names for my mum, it was an, like, the most surreal moment. You know, she grew up in the 70s and the 60s and 70s when she was, it was a big secret. It was dangerous to know that you had family abroad. It was all very uncertain. It was difficult being Jewish in Russia and for her to suddenly see those names and with you know being able to contact them I think it was just an absolutely surreal moment and when I messaged so it was Adolf's granddaughter one of them who I'd messaged and you know I think it was just the anticipation you know what if they don't know about us mm. and what if they don't acknowledge us and what if they say oh whatever you know like we don't care we're not interested it, it could have gone so many different ways and I think I was just you know so worried that that because we'd I'd grown up knowing about them I think the the rejection would have been just really hard to bear mm. but in the end it was great because so she got back to me within 24 hours she had already spoken to her mother that was the best thing I think of, her, of the whole story is that at that point both my grandmother who's um who's lives in London still uh, but her first cousin Adolf's daughter Genya the youngest daughter was still alive and that was the best thing well, first of all, that eventually the, the two first cousins could meet. And that was the first meeting, which I, you know, start the book with. But it was also only thanks to her, to Genya being alive, that yeah. uh, that her daughter Ariane knew about us because she didn't actually know about us. She had to ring up her mother and say, what is this? Is this true? And, you know, I can understand that because they hadn't heard from us for so long since the 50s. They had no idea what would have happened to us in the Soviet Union. It was very feasible that we hadn't survived or had gone away or that never remembered their names or anything. And so it was just amazing that Genya was around, that she was very much, 
she was a completely phenomenal woman at that age. I mean, I went to her, we were at her 100th birthday and she was absolutely wow. the star of the room. That's incredible. It's, yeah, it's unbelievable. Yeah. Um, how much of this was a quest for your own identity in a way, your own identity within that story? You make parallels between um, what your great auntie and grandmother would have gone through especially you talk about the first uh, the first Pesach and the Passover um yeah I mean I don't think it was a quest at the beginning actually I was completely consumed by the actual story because when I saw the you know the fact that they were parallel lives the east and the west and I mean there's so many books that are written about you know the Jewish memoir the Holocaust memoir the second world war there's a lot of that but I've ne- I haven't come across another book that had that parallel east and west experience where two families split and then connect again and that was part of the thing so when I started it definitely wasn't about me it wasn't a quest for my identity but 10 years prior to the discovering of the families uh, when I when I moved to the UK I kind of discovered my own Jewish Russian British identity it was all a bit of a kind of puzzle that I had to kind of put together to kind of understand how I felt about things because again uh, we didn't really talk about being Jewish when I was growing up in Moscow for no other reason that it was just the cultural we were just used to not talking about it you know it was fine in the 90s we could have but my parents they didn't grow up in a particularly kind of Jewish aware household and so when I did start asking them questions they didn't um, have the answers they still kind of preferred not to talk about it and so it was only when I came to England that I started finding those answers and I went to university and I met made Jewish friends and um, and so I think when I did then discover my family I already knew more about my identity I knew how that fit in with me and so being able to put the picture together and say okay well these are my ancestors and this is what their lives were like and we all come from Polish Jews and now I am British but also Russian and it's really tricky to put into words but I think there was it was a big quest on (laughs) different levels. I'm sorry if you've mentioned this in the book and I've missed it how long did you spend writing it from that first point of interest I think altogether it was probably about seven years from all the research so it's 10 years ago that we met them uh it was this this autumn and then yeah about seven years from all the research and all the traveling and writing and editing and everything was it quite a consuming process or you were able to just keep it as like a sort of research project it was a very consuming project for the first kind of three or four years I did a lot of traveling I went to every single place that I could think of that was mentioned you know that was part of the story I went to Brussels I went to Antwerp where they um Genya's sister Eva lived during the war I went to Poland we went to Warsaw with my husband together where we I went to while I was visiting Israel I went to Tel Aviv I found those streets where you know Genya lived during the war as well So I tried to visit everything. I did lots of interviews. You know, I interviewed everyone and then I went over my notes. I wrote it up and I went back and interviewed them again. You know, I was literally just going back and forth for like to wherever I can think of for a couple of years. And then I wrote several drafts and it was a completely all consuming process. I mean, I had a very strict schedule. I would only, you know, have social engagements on days that I was already at work. So I could come and go and see friends after work. And if I wasn't working, that I just wouldn't leave the house. I, I was like on a mission. Um, and then it kind of slowed down when I, when I had my first daughter, um, obviously, you know, it was, there was a lot more editing. I'd already finished the main draft. So it was more on and off for the last kind of three, four years. 
but you know all consuming it still is and absolutely the book is out and it's been out for for not even a month yet and it's still all, all consuming it's sort of still all, all i can think about <laughs> and maybe it's a bit soon because like you say it's only just out but people who contributed people who you interviewed along the way i imagine there's some people really touched by it yeah i mean everyone the swiss family have i've had a really good reception they've really enjoyed it i think i was quite worried obviously that you know i tried to do it justice i also tried to be sensitive to people's histories and their experiences and you know to tell them as fully as i could without you know getting anything wrong and so there's a, there was definitely a sense of you know trepidation when when it finally came out and and they, and they were reading it but i mean i think they've really enjoyed it i've had lots of positive you know feedback and lots of tearful messages very emotional which has been amazing oh, that's so cool and just having this piece of history family history that you've created and you know can can be passed on no absolutely and you know and part of the story like it started when when with the photos it started with the photos of my grandmother's cousins when when I was still you know growing up in Moscow and I would see them and I just really wanted to know who these women were and they were so glamorous on the photos you know from the 1930s Switzerland you know it's it's a certain style it's a certain demeanor how they hold themselves and very different to you know what I kind of grew up with in Russia and I just wanted to know what they were like and what they did and and my grandmother didn't know anything because obviously contact was cut and other other than their names and maybe the I think the names of their husbands that the, that was it and so to be able to go from that to to then writing a book about them and that will then you know we can pass on to uh, to my children to the the, you know the next generation in Switzerland as well it's I think it's yeah it's an absolutely amazing feeling to be able to have done that and uh, to kind of to to commemorate them as well it's a tribute to them to all the amazing women who are in the book uh, I, I always amazes me just how much people in the 20th century especially in Europe have been through I mean obviously people go through crazy challenges every day in the rest of the world we're not used to it in the UK I mean I mean I, I did live in Iran for a bit so I kind of know it but not to not to the extent that um and you just think what people have gone through and the lives they've built. You know? That's the thing. And I think, unfortunately, I mean, first of all, yes, but we do forget that, you know, things are still happening in the world. And when I was writing, you haven't, you probably haven't got to that bit yet, but when Eva and, and her daughter Anita get caught when Germany invades Belgium and they get caught on holiday and they cross into France and they're just near Dunkirk and Operation Dynamo is about to happen and they get stranded and they're walking for weeks and they become refugees effectively in northern France. And they're walking and Ava is obviously disabled. She she struggles to walk. And I was writing those pages and I was researching that part of history when refugees were fleeing. And five years ago in the summer where we had those scenes of people walking across Hungary, trying to get to Germany. And, you know, it's it's a very similar thing in a sense. I mean, obviously the political realities are different, the events are different, the technology is different, but it's the people's flight. It's people trying to escape, save their lives, protect their families, save the children. And I remember obviously being a journalist, but seeing probably maybe a lot more of those scenes that people would have seen in newspapers and on TV. But I just remember we had a, we had a feed, a Reuters feed or something at work. And I just remember people walking and walking and walking. And that really affected me because I could see the women and the children and they were just walking for days. 
it was the same for Ava and her daughter. You know, they were walking away from the from from German troops. Didn't they? They didn't know where they were going to get to. They were hoping to be able to cross into. I mean, their dream was obviously Switzerland. They were hoping to get to a safe place, and it's it was just the similarities were just striking, and it just reminded me again and again that you know, horrible things are still happening in the world. And it's a tragedy when families are still being separated. So I think in that sense, Mm -hmm. it's also a very timeless book because families are still being separated. And yes, they might be able to be in touch because they have WhatsApp, but, um, you know, the experiences are no less horrific in a sense. Yeah, God, I was, um, during that time you're talking about with where people were leaving Syria, I was actually living in Stockholm and I remember being, on um the the metro on the platform there and there was a huge gathering of um of these syrians who you know clearly had just arrived and um and i saw i don't know if it was a mother and a daughter but this little girl and a relative and it was clearly a reunion of two people that thought they weren't (laughs) going to see each other again and honestly and i just drove it home to me like Mm -hmm. you know humanity doesn't learn and my goodness we are just yeah people go through horrendous things and the scars people bear as well but live you know but get on you get through it survival um i've got a list of all these notes i've literally just made loads of notes while reading and lots of questions i've asked about three percent of them firstly i've got a note here saying isn't zelda zilbert the best name in the world is it zilbert or zilbert it's just <laughs> yes, like the it best is. name just i i just want to change my name to, that's just amazing so this is zena uh your great 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 yes. grandmother that's, that's a yeah. particular highlight um there's also the love story which i'm looking well not the love story i don't know uh ava and simon which i'm looking forward to returning to so that's a teaser yes. for anyone listening yes that is very much a they're the stories that we all want right or we always imagine that you know we'll tell our granddaughters this <laughs> about this man that came into our lives i mean the cynic in me is reading that going i think he's you know trying it on with your love and you know backing off because you're engaged um well keep breathing keep breathing that's all i'm, I'm very excited about that <laughs> and my, is my cynical side going to be uh lifted somewhat you're on tenterhooks there. I, I know i really am i love those those stories how do you feel now it's out now this incredible seven-year journey is over and uh, yeah the book's out that job's done what are your feelings on completion Oh gosh, I don't know. It's been a roller coaster. It's been absolutely amazing. Just the reception it's had and being able to, you know, do these talks and I have so many more coming up in the new year and be able to share the story. It's like I'm reliving it again. And what I really love actually is all the questions that I'm getting because it does make me look at it in a different light from a, from a different angle or, you know, question, trying to remember how I was feeling, how, what I was thinking. And that's a really interesting experience for me as well, because I've been on my own with it for so long, you know, analyzing it myself. And now I'm getting other people's ideas. Like no one had ever pointed out how amazing a name Zelda Zilbert is, for example. <laughs> it needs to be said. It's great to be able to look at it from, you know, other perspectives and from, you know, the way other people look at it as well. And are you thinking when the world is a little bit more normal and people can be in a room properly together, are you thinking of doing like a book event or some sort of belated launch? Oh, night? Absolutely. Well, everything I'm doing so far has been virtual. You know, I've done a book launch that's been virtual on my talks when they start in January. Every single thing is virtual even the things that are being booked for april at the moment so i definitely hope that once the world goes back to normal we can have a book launch in the shop in a bookshop yes as it should be well it's an absolutely fascinating story i've loved reading it so far i can't wait to uh carry on and get to the end and and see what happens with with ava and simon thank you nadia ragazzino you've been absolutely wonderful it's been just fantastic speaking to you about worlds apart uh wishing you all the success with it i hope everyone buys it and reads 
enjoys it and loves it. Thank you very much for having me. I've really enjoyed talking to you. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks. Great talking to you. Thanks so much for your time. How good was that? I barely scraped the surface of all the questions I had to ask, but I'm so glad we got to have her on the podcast. Insightful and interesting. And I always love it when people clearly have their own fascinating stories. I mean, she moved from Russia when she was 15, but they choose instead to focus on those of their loved ones and wrap up those stories in a bow for future generations. What an incredible gift for Nadia to give to her family. And speaking of gifts, if you do still have names on your Christmas list that you haven't ticked off, I'd say this is a pretty good choice. You can buy Worlds Apart through all major retailers or head to our shop on uk.bookshop.org. Search for Dabblers Book Club and every purchase helps support local bookshops. Can you believe we've now been going a year? We still have two books left for season two and another special guest episode that we've been sitting on a little while that will go out in January. As always, please like, share, subscribe and tell us what you really feel, as long as it's nice. We try to keep our website updated, so keep checking in to dabblersbookclub.com and say hello on Twitter at Dabblers Books. See you next time. Thank you.